You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to TFM's local books and comic show for Star Trek, and I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and I'm so excited that with me here to talk about some new Earth, Casey Pettit. Hello. Hey, Casey, how are you doing today? I am good. I, I am I am ready for the new earth oh yes me too me too i got a question for you do you ever just feel like you have a case of the tuesdays (laughs) yeah (laughs) every every tuesday and sometimes on mondays yes yeah which makes monday even worse but it's true it's very true yes yeah i don't think we have anything that's going to be installed on next tuesday though no no we're safe yeah you know it's such a great great uh pull i didn't even think about the Star Trek Generations reference there. But yeah, you know, Tuesday's just not a great day because um, things are always trying to get installed there. And so, hmm, anyway. But <laughs> we uh, don't really, I mean, there's no Star Trek book news yet. Um, and uh, as we're recording this, uh, the uh, big Star Trek convention happening in Chicago hasn't happened yet. So maybe we'll get some news there book-wise as to what's going to be coming out. So, um, otherwise, we are going to be just diving back into the new Earth series with Bell Tear. Casey, so I wanted to ask you, uh, before we even kind of got going on anything that we had kind of outlined to talk about, we both kind of had some frustrations um, with this uh, first book. And so I just wanted to start right up front with how you felt like this book did i mean and just kind of getting into it um did this book make you feel better about the series were you more excited about reading it uh and and through it and and like just how did you end up feeling about this book overall um which is kind of a weird place to start but we just had such an issue <laughs> with the first one did this one get better <laughs> right before we like start just cutting something down um no i i um I was a little trepidatious going into this one. I, I've read all of these books before, but I remember absolutely zero from them. Um, but this this book was far and away better than the first one. I feel like this would actually almost have been maybe not so much uh, the a good first book of the series, but I feel like what it did was um, gave us... I don't know more to do more it felt more like a star trek story in in the last one i said maybe it would have been a better book if it hadn't been set in the star trek universe 
and it was just some other sci-fi adventure. This one felt very Star Trek to me, mm-hmm. and it, it had a lot of adventure, a lot of heart, and left a lot of threads open where you could see them taking things. And while the first book did, obviously, they introduced some new aliens in the area and a little whisper of this quake moon that we get a lot more of in this book. Um, but it was the first one was such a shambles that, um, you know, there was kind of almost nowhere to go up. But this one uh, kind of knocked my socks off with how much better it was. And uh, it, it in an easy read too, not in that like it was uh, very simple or anything, but the pace was good. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point. Um, I, I think one of the things that this book really did, uh, like you said, it it found a way to be really interesting, really fun, and at the same time, really uh, be focused on the story that it was trying to tell. And not only that, I think just, you know, the readability of the book was better, uh, too. And, you know, I think um, that was one of the things that was kind of frustrating about the, the first book is that it just it it didn't flow very well story wise. It it really did feel like um, a jumbled kind of hodgepodge of ideas and all this kind of stuff. And it, it just there was just something off about it. And I think this book mm-hmm. uh, really didn't have any of those issues, which was pretty amazing um i was i was just very impressed with that and so um yeah i i i have to say um and just again this is kind of a weird place to start because it's more like the end but i i coming into this then and at the end to talk about it with you i'm more excited about this series moving forward just because of the way this book went so well, and after reading this one now, too, I have, although Diane Carey, who wrote the first one, um, I think she had a hand in creating this series, kind of the the idea behind it. But I feel like she almost, she or the editors or whoever kind of kind of hamstrung that story by saying, okay, the first book has to take place in the months, you know, of the journey to Beltaire you know, and introduce some characters and we got, we got, we got introduced to some ships and some characters, but really the only one that comes over into this book other than our main characters is the governor. And then, um, we get, you know, we, we learn about more of the ships that we had in the first book too. But like, I mean, when you kind of look at that first book, you're like, well, how do you tell a story about just a six month warp to travel through space you know without like having all of these catastrophes that they had and the catastrophes that happen in this book that they have to deal with just felt more natural i guess to the story like in dealing with this colony that they didn't really investigate before they before they moved in yes no a hundred percent um you know i think by and you know part of this is that you know and i think we can kind of like get to you know, uh, the getting to this new world. I think by getting to the new world and by kind of alleviating a lot of the ships that we're jumping around on, um, this mm-hmm. really helped, again, the focus of the story because now we're just kind of dealing with everybody in one place 
because they're all on the planet and then you've got the Enterprise and then you've got a couple of other ships that we deal with um, and we, we end up with a lot of ship action, but it's not that thing where we're trying to jump from ship to ship to ship, kind of give a day in the life of what's happening on this trip, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I was very excited that we finally got to Beltair and we could actually deal with this idea of a new Earth and creating this new society and all of those type of things. Yeah. And I mean, like by the time they get there and we're, we're actually on the planet, I mean, we they've been talking they talked like the entire first book about how beautiful this planet was and we actually get to see that in this i mean the book starts off with kirk sitting on a beach watching a a a woman with her son you know playing on the beach and he just thinks this is the life you know and um is you know and that's kind of a, a a through line throughout the story too is just thinking back to that time on the beach and and lillian coates and and her son and and the things that go on with them that we'll talk about but um, the way it starts off, yeah, you 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 feel like it's this beautiful planet that's going to be, you know, as Mary Poppins would say, practically perfect in every way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you, and I thought it was one of the fun things about this. Uh, actually, for me, was that the description of of the place that they're in felt very familiar to me. Um, I live in the Pacific Northwest here, and um, this actually felt like the coast in Oregon um, because, you know, you've got it close to, you know, forests and, you know, giant rock formations, a.k.a., you know, there's some mountain areas nearby, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. It just really felt like where I live, which, you know, is a gorgeous place in the country uh, here in the United States. And so absolutely uh, loved that, you know, I could see why they would want to be here. Um, and, and it, you know, like it really brought back the idea of the, you know, we're, we're mimicking the idea of the Oregon trail so that that's where you're going basically is that type of world. Uh, so I, I loved that. And I I thought that that was a a lot of fun. Um, just even in, in those descriptions of the planet, I, I do think it's interesting too, because, I mean, I wanted to ask you, because one of the things we mentioned in the first book about this idea of them going to the New World was that they wanted more freedom and everything from the Federation. But I I mean, in the first book, I remember they were going to ask for Federation membership. Yeah. So I don't really quite understand how this is all going to work. <laughs> yeah, that's something I'm still a little lost on myself, because they, they there's a couple mentions of it in this one, too, about uh, the the mineral or the ore or whatever that's inside the moon could make this planet rich, but then, you know, talking about having Starfleet ships protect it, but Starfleet wouldn't do that if they weren't members of the Federation. And and Kirk even goes out of his way to say like, this is your moon with your uh, riches basically. And, um, you know, almost as if like a bid to say like, Hey, you guys should join the Federation, but that was something that they'd already talked about from the beginning. So I'm not, I'm still not really sure what they were trying to get away from and what they're trying to go to if the Federation's always going to be involved anyway, unless there's a way that they could be a member and, you know, be kind of one of those remote planets that gets a starship that goes by every few years just to check on them and drop off some supplies or pick up their Olivium or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
that was uh, it, so the idea that they might have stumbled across, you know, uh, one of the most incredible deposits of this thing we've never heard of in Star Trek that really helps with the creation of technology uh, was, you know, pretty fascinating. And it is all a part of this this quake moon that we have mentioned in the first book, the very end, and now, of course, plays a huge part in this. And what was interesting about this is that it was almost like this book was kind of helping explain why there is going to be a technological advancement between the original series, movies, and TNG because they talk about giving you greater holographic technology, medical science, computers, more powerful weapons, all of these type of things, um, which, you know, is really interesting. Uh, and it makes sense that this might be the start of something that would allow us to to get what we think of the as the TNG universe. That's a really interesting point, because where this series is set is between motion picture and wrath of Khan. And I was watching a little bit of the motion picture today because as we're recording today's the day that the 4k uh, motion picture got released on Mm -hmm. Paramount plus. And I forgot that in that movie, they still have like buttons and knobs and stuff on their controls on the bridge. But by the time we get into star Trek two, it's a lot of touch screens in Star Trek three, like, you know, in that era, mm-hmm. yeah, which is within a few years. And, and so that, that, you know, that does make sense. Like, you know, that's going to be in my head canon now. <laughs> they got this new technology from this planet that may or may not be Federation. Well, the, the interesting thing is, is that like you said, by the time you get to Star Trek six, there's a lot more touch screens. Yeah, oh, yeah, you know, um, I mean, and they still have some some specific levers, and you know, I think it, part of that is that that's really what um, director Nick Meyer likes. But I think you know they they do a really good job of kind of mixing the two, so you can kind of picture them getting to the TNG universe later on down the road. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. I just you know, I, I think this was really cool. Um, and, and really neat. And, and then of course the problem is, is that this moon in and of itself is causing massive problems because it is about to explode and they have to find a way to be able to uncork the moon so that they have a chance of living here. One of the things that we were really frustrated about with uh, the first book is that they didn't seem to put a lot of thought into coming to this place, mm-hmm. and the uh, and um, they hadn't done enough research on it. And now we're we're seeing the fruits of that labor, um, or the lack thereof. I think they even said in the first book that there was at least a chance that that moon could explode, and. You know, the people were still like, this is our planet, we'll figure it out. And yeah, it's it's during this book that they find out, no, no, it's going to explode like right now, like within, I think, mm-hmm. eight days. And which is one of the things I actually thought was pretty cool about the way this book was set up was it, I mean, from chapter one, like very first thing you see countdown eight hours and, or I mean, mm-hmm. eight days and seven hours, which just kind of 
you know, you're, you quickly get clued into what that refers to, but like, there's kind of this intrigue, like it's a hook, like immediately. Um, but I, but I also feel like this situation, I guess, that they find themselves in is, is a really interesting thing that I feel like the Star Trek genre, the Star Trek format, I guess, fits really well with because there's this seemingly impossible situation happening that they need to solve solve this problem and they actually go through a lot of science and like they're trying to think of all of the different angles that you know do we just need to get out of here people don't want to get out of here okay well what can we do to stop it and it just seems insurmountable but you know leave it to kirk and his crew to to figure it out but but even spock and then there was even um the um it's the rattlesnake ship is what the name of the ship is the rattlesnake with captain sun and his crew i think were the ones that had come out and done the mm-hmm. survey to begin with and they and like kind of a side note he actually like that captain actually feels bad that they didn't have all this information ahead of time like he's feeling some responsibility for the situation they're in but um but anyway like the just the problem solving that they go through in this book and the science and coming together and working together um i felt like really fit with this star trek um story into a star trek story much more than anything that happened in the first book did like i I just felt with spock and and kirk and all of the original series crew in there it just felt like everybody was kind of at their best and you know, Uhura and Sulu Chekhov, they're all like leading teams and have to kind of come back to the Enterprise to help solve this problem. Yeah, I completely agree with you, um, you know, in in the way in which they they go about solving this problem with the moon. Uh, you really do get a sense of, you know, why the Enterprise Enterprise crew is special and why they're on this mission in the first place, which is awesome. Um, and mm-hmm. the fact that they are basically doing the impossible here. And yeah. I think that's fantastic, you know. Um, and then, like you said, it is kind of neat, too, because before all the, the stuff what happens with the moon, yeah, you've got the entire crew, uh, you know, working in different places on the planet to to help these settlers. And one of my favorite parts is is Bones, you know, and... Uh, the scientific team finding this bacteria that is really special because it's actually going to help other planets. Um, This bacteria is actually very helpful for agriculture and, you know, helps uh, it seems like, you know, new plants be able to grow in new places and to be able to grow quicker and faster and, you know, all these type of things. And it's the type of thing that, you know, a lot of times you go to a, a planet in Star Trek and you end up finding, oh, that something was bad there. Here they find right. out this planet is almost like an Eden with the way that not only is it set up, um, I mean, except for the quake moon, of course, but that it right. has <laughs> these natural bacteria that actually would help with the growth of crops and things like that that could actually be transplanted to other places to help. So, I mean... That was a really neat thing that this book added and I thought was really cool as well, which I think also goes to speak to the idea of the Federation kind of growing during this time period. And maybe Mm -hmm. they can grow because they found this bacteria that helps, you know, the Federation be able to spread out. So, yeah, maybe it'll help terraform other planets or whatever. And um, 
yeah, Bones. I, he he just was so excited about this that uh, you know he even when Kirk calls him back to the Enterprise for a crisis, he. I mean, Bones' mind is on this bacteria and collecting as much of it as they can, especially once they find out that they may end up having to relocate these mm-hmm. colonists. You know, they're just trying to pack up as much of this dirt, basically, as they can. And, um, you know, so even even in the worst case scenario of them having to go somewhere else, like there's still maybe something of this planet that they could take with them. In, in addition to this olivium that's inside the moon, I mean, this this planet almost seems too good to be true when you really think about it, except for the the quake moon that's going to maybe destroy the planet. But, like, you know, between the bacteria and this this olivium that's going to make them rich beyond their wildest imaginations, like, this is, uh, for not having done much research, they uh, sure kind of hit the jackpot mm-hmm. on, on some things. Yeah, and I mean, what's, what's, what's pretty interesting about that as well is that You have this this place to which it has a blessing and a curse to it. And why this is so difficult, because, you know, the question becomes, do we stay or do we go now? <laughs> and <laughs> they have a really good reason for wanting to stay because yeah. this and, and I mean, the other part about this that's really interesting is that. They don't really have a ton of choices because, you know, they they don't really have the ability to go back easily. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm I just I'm really I think this book does such a great job of setting the stakes. And it does it really in in a way that is really well done. And I, I think what it goes to show is that, you know, this is what happens when you're on the frontier and you can't just call for reinforcements quickly. Um, and so I loved it. I mean, uh, this is exactly kind of what I this is exactly what I thought that this type of story would be about. Yeah, and I feel like um, the author kind of. Corrected some of the. I don't know, big headedness that the colonists had before they got there. Um, you know, in the first book, they were very argumentative and wanted to do things their way and didn't want Starfleet intervening. And in this book, when they would have their town meetings and Kirk or even the governor laying out the stakes that are, you know, like, here, here's our choices that are in front of us. None of them are good. You'd get some backlash from the colonists, but then they would be provided with more information like, well, you know, we can't go all the way back to earth because we don't have the supplies and we can't, you know, do this, you know, because the planet will be destroyed or whatever. And so like, as people realize like how high the stakes are, they really kind of come together in a, in, in a better way than we saw in the previous book um, where they are all really in this together. Mm -hmm. And you don't have an entire ship of people saying, yeah, forget this. We just want to turn around. We've got all the colonists saying, let's do what it what it's going to take, or let's at least try to, we're all going to put our lives on the line to see if we can save our planet. And I thought that that was a good um, course correction for the, mm-hmm. for the colonists, because they weren't very likable in the first book. And in this one, I feel like we, we didn't really get to know many of them, but like, they just, 
they felt like better people, I guess, this time. Yep. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. What did you uh, – so part of the story with the the quake moon causing these issues, one of the solutions that Kurt comes up with was the idea that the ship, the Rattlesnake, will go and search for uh, possible other worlds where the colonists could stay. They could stay there forever or it could just be maybe a way – stop you know where they could gather supplies mm-hmm. and everything if they needed to make their way back to uh federation space and they end up running into something that is quite terrifying and so what did you think about that part of the story that was probably actually one of my favorite parts of the story just because um it's another solution that they are trying like that kirk is trying to um in this problem with the quake moon they're trying to solve this problem by sending another ship out like a scout ship to to look for another place like you said just even as a, a stopover place but um with captain sun the captain of the rattlesnake he he was the one i mentioned before that is struggling with some um you know he feels like he should have done more work before bringing all the colonists to belterre um, and, is, and is feeling some responsibility. So now he's feeling even more responsibility for finding another place for them and is cautious. I don't want to say to a fault because it turns out, well, we actually don't know how it turns out because it's kind of a cliffhanger on this story. But like there's this blackness that's they, they find this perfect, like another perfect planet. And there's this blackness that uh, is what they call it, that basically wiped out all of the energy and electricity and everything that's on this planet to where all the people on the planet died off and but otherwise the planet seems like it'd be a pretty slick place because it's got infrastructure and buildings and everything um but he's not the captain is not willing to go and report this place back to kirk as a safe place because they don't know exactly what um what happened to the people of that planet and then they encounter this this darkness this blackness and um they are lost basically we don't know what happened to them and that was i think one of the great cliffhangers of the story like the perfect um i, I don't even want to call it a thread it's a full-on piece of yarn that's already coming out of this tapestry that we need mm-hmm. to to grab onto in in one of the other books and i'm i'm looking forward to hopefully visiting that it was a. I think you're absolutely right. You know, it was a really interesting part of the story, uh, and I thought that what was really neat about it was just kind of how terrifying this thing is. It reminds me a little bit of the probe in Star Trek Four, but it's even worse because mm. it completely drains right. all power, and you and and you can't even create more like no batteries don't even work like nothing works so if it has power it gets completely drained and it is inoperable so this is kind of a terrifying thing that's going through the galaxy and and it's just this darkness they they have no idea what it is there's no way for them to you know be able to uh, scan it really and understand it and and then of course they're too close to it and they get caught in it and you know Mm-hmm. They, for all intents and purposes, for what we know, they die. Um, everybody freezes to death. Um, yeah. And so it is really, really terrifying. 
And it is a definitely, like you said, a hanging yarn now. Uh, and so what will happen with that is really fascinating. Now, one thing, though, that I didn't love about that part of the story was the idea that you would just be able to find another M-Class world that quickly. Um, yeah. You know, it, Star Trek Enterprise does a great job of reminding us that M-Class worlds are rarer rather than not. And therefore, mm-hmm. uh, you you just don't, you know, go at warp whatever and, and just run into one very quickly. So I, I think that was something that that part of the story bothered me that they were able to find one so quickly. Yeah. Um, and because it's just not realistic, really. Um, but other than that, the rest of that part of the story, I thought was great. You know, I, I thought yeah. um, it was another one of those things where the book does a great job of alternating between action and enough explanation as to what's going on without ever dragging. Like this book is yeah. is snappy uh, in that way, which yeah. is great. Well, and even in in that, uh, once the the uh, rattlesnake once that ship loses all its power and they're in the dark, like that was kind of a creepy part. Like it even talks about how like, you know, they'd never really gone around the ship with all of the lights off and just by flashlights and everything. And, um, you know, not even really recognizing. And I think they were um, trying to find a place to be able to stay warm on the ship or whatever as they're floating around because the gravity's all gone too. And, you know, just talking like it was just a very brief section, but, you know, he talked about how, um, their ship that they lived on was now this kind of unfamiliar territory to them. And, you know, just to think about like, that's kind of a situation that the colonists are in too, because they're in this unfamiliar territory with an emergency happening and they don't know how they're going to get mm-hmm. out of it. And so kind of just a nice little, little parallel there, but now I'd agree with you absolutely on the, on the planets. And um, he, he, <laughs> There was a couple lines, too, that there was 120 stars within, a, you know, a, however, you know, a day. And it's just like, wow, that's that's a lot of stars. And I know warp is fast, but I didn't realize it was that fast. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm right there with you. I was like, I think that I might be a little bit off on that one. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's it's good. Um, and I think it's it's a really interesting storyline. Um, so uh, to me, I thought it was really well done. And I am very interested to, you know, now see where we're going to end up with that storyline. Because mm-hmm. uh, like you said, we have, you know, what happened on the planet, but we also have what went down here um, with this, this ship, the rattlesnake, and... You're, you are legitimately just left hanging. So yep. um, w- there's another storyline here uh, where, so because the colonists, you know, they made this massive trip, right? And we get some of the kids that run away and because mm-hmm. they don't want to leave, which, you know, makes sense. I mean, after everything they've been through, the last thing they want to do, and, and they actually leave before they have any understanding of what's happening with the moon. And therefore they aren't, they don't know about that yet. And so a big part of the story is them trying to find these kids 
before everybody dies. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, just how did you feel about this part of the story? I was okay with it for the most part. Um, it, it seemed, um, it seemed like something that the kids would be thinking, you know, the, um, with Lillian Coates, son, he, he asked her, you know, you, you promise we can stay and she's kind of, you know, beating around the bush a little bit, but yeah, like if we, you know, they're going to try to save the planet and, you know, I want to stay too, but the, the thinking of these kids really is very childlike and mm-hmm. that, if we run away, they can't leave without right. us. And it's actually kind of heartbreaking knowing that most of them do, you know, like it was just Lillian that stayed back. And part of that was just because she lost her husband on the way to the mm-hmm. planet uh, on the, on the voyage there. And so her son was really the only one she had left. And the other families, they did say took some convincing to get on the ships, but I'm a little surprised that other people in the colony didn't, decide to stick around to help look for the kids that it was just one like of six kids that just one person stayed behind Mm -hmm. it didn't it didn't seem i mean we needed that for the drama i guess but it it just seemed like there had at least been a couple people probably that would have stayed um and i'm i'm glad too that um you know the kids had found the cave because that obviously played in later and and saving their mm-hmm. lives when right. when the moon explosion or the whatever happens on the moon happens i guess it wasn't the explosion but uh the radiation is released mm-hmm. but i i did appreciate that they explained why when they scanned for the kids before they could never find them you know because they scanned within like a hundred mile radius i mean there's no way the kids could have ever gotten that far right. and they exp- they eventually explained that the the sensors couldn't like there was something in the rocks mm-hmm. that yes. the sensors couldn't penetrate and so that that made it better, especially once like later at the end when they go looking for them after the the moon business is done, um, that they kind of appear out of nowhere because a couple mm-hmm. of the kids come out right. of the cave. So it, like it all fit and kind of melted well together. And so I think it wasn't my favorite part of the story, but it, it did add some of that additional drama. I mean, if no one was on the planet, well... I guess whatever happens happens then, but now we've got some people that we want to save. So, so for that part, I did appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, it is definitely not my favorite part of the story, but I don't think that it is one to which they spend an enormous amount of time on. Uh, you know, so it's not, and, and like you said, it's, it's kind of that thing that you would do in a movie. If, if we're going to have yeah. this major story plot point, and if there's nobody else, if there's nobody on the planet that just puts one more level of like, oh my gosh, we got to get this fixed, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and just, just one more pressure point for the story to hit. Uh, and so I think that's the thing that in the end, you know, makes it work. Um, and, and yeah. wisely, uh, they, they don't spend a ton of time on it which is great too yeah. so you're it's just, you're not it's another spot where they kind of keep it snappy like you yes. said yeah no it's it, absolutely so what did so we've got the solution that has to happen and and we talked a little bit about this idea but just specifically what did you end up thinking of the solution for fixing their moon problem 
this this was one part that I, I vaguely remembered as I was reading it about like pushing the moon into the other moon and it's a little ridiculous um I, it's a lot ridiculous if I'm being honest but um as far as the story goes and how they set it up they they make it sound like it's a crazy plan and so you know they're they're almost saying like this is ridiculous we're going to take one moon and throw it into another moon and hope that solves mm-hmm. our problems and and so because of that it wasn't just like this oh yeah we could do this we do this every day we always move moons around in solar systems you know like they made it sound like this you know like that they barely had enough ships and you know even when their first plan doesn't work with trying to kind of pop the cork i guess on the moon to release the pressure um they they try pushing the moon and then they realize okay they can't use all of their force all at once so they all have to use just a little bit of force Mm -hmm. and then that way if one of the ships has to back out they can you know compensate and so like they i mean it's just more of that problem solving that happens that they're trying to work on the fly so it makes this kind of ridiculous thing that they're trying to do seem just like well thought out i guess and um and so that was something that i did appreciate that okay yeah we just and i mean and again like they they even say it at one point in the story like this is not something that they see every day like witness a moon crashing into another one and so um and even as it's happening they're kind of describing like what it looks like and what are we expecting to see we don't know is it going to bounce off or you know whatever and um so I guess to sum up, it's just like it's this ridiculous situation that is treated very well, and um, you know you can almost see the logic and the progression of all of their ideas. Mm-hmm. I I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I think it's the thing about it that it's so great, and and where I really came personally to. To think like, yes, this is ridiculous as a story point, but they do all of these other maneuvers like um, with the tractor beams and everything to try and loosen it and mm-hmm. all. And I think all of that stuff is just so great and cool so that by the time that we get to them having to shove another moon into, you know, another moon. Us, we're gonna shove a smaller moon into a larger moon, and, and we're gonna blow it up. Um, it 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 doesn't seem as crazy, and and I think yeah. part of it, like what you said, and I, I really liked it, was that they recognize how crazy it is, and and they call it out, and therefore it doesn't actually feel as crazy, um, because. They're like, yeah, this is insane. We know it. Yeah. Uh, and and so I, I think that's something that actually makes the story work because they're like, yeah, this is ridiculous. But yeah. it's the only – that that's how desperate they are. And I think that's kind of what makes the story really good is that this desperation leads to this insane amount of creativity to get us out of this place – um, and find a way around it, which, you know, I, I, I kind of love like that's isn't that like it's what we love about Star Trek, right? Is is yeah. those kind of stories where we're we're coming up with 
ideas that seem nuts. We're pushing the boundaries of science and everything to come up with these ideas to save ourselves. And and they absolutely do that here, and I think it makes it a lot of fun with the story. So, yeah. Well, Spock, you know, does his thing at pointing out that the chances of success are are very small, you know, within the single-digit percentages, and the people vote on it, and they're like, yeah, but if, if this is our only shot like we're gonna we don't have enough right. st- supplies right. to get back to the federation so like if this is our only shot let's let's take it let's do what we got to do mm-hmm. to try to save even just half the planet because even after if this works yes. which it does like half the planet the main part of the planet that they've been on and we're trying to settle is pretty much going to be unusable because of, of radiation and um just kind of killing everything on the surface at that point and they have to go live on some islands on the other side of the planet. So, I mean, it's kind of one of those things like all is not lost, but they are, they are making huge sacrifices, Mm -hmm. whatever they do in this situation. So it's kind of, you know, at the end of the day, they were basically like, yeah, why not? Let's try taking one of the moons and right. (laughs) Throwing it into ours. I mean, cause the, I mean, one of the things by doing this, they will have the opportunity to still leave. Um, mm-hmm. and yes, it, what it's going to require is then it, it to literally kind of limp home. And that's where the rattlesnake came in and with trying to find maybe another place for them to, to stay. Uh, and, and of course, you know, we know how that went, story went cause we talked about it, <laughs> but I, that's what I like is there were other parts of this and contingencies in this. And what ends up happening is, is not necessarily, the plan that they want to go with. Um, and so th- I think that's what re- I really liked about um, the story. And yeah, it's over the top and crazy, but I mean, that's kind of what makes Star Trek fun sometimes. Right. So. Yeah. Well, and the, and the stakes were super high and I, I'm kind of curious what you think. Like th- there was the one ship that um, they lost one of their engines and didn't get their tractor beam shut off in time. And so like they were hurtling towards the planet. And I mean, I was kind of on the edge of my seat reading that. Cause I'm like, are they going to really destroy a ship with thousands of people on it? And they don't like, they save it at, at the in exact last second before this, this ship crashes into the planet. But I'm wondering, do you think they should have let that like, not, not they, the crews, but like the author should have let that ship get destroyed for the story to like really show that these stakes were high. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've already lost a lot of people getting to the colony to begin with, but you know, as far as saving the planet, should they have had that sacrifice? Uh, that's a good question. Um, and I don't really know the answer. I'm basically asking, do you want to kill thousands yeah. of people? <laughs> do you want to kill a starship? Do you want all the people to die? Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I no. It's. I think it's an excellent question, and I honestly don't know the answer. I think. I think I was okay with everybody living. You know, in yeah. that, um, like you said, there'd been enough death on this planet, and it does seem like where we're going next, the next book, there's a possibility of this really being uh, a difficult book because mm-hmm. of what they're about to go through. Um and so I I'm actually really fascinated to to get there. Um yeah. Because th- this colony group has a really interesting road ahead of them. 
And I think it's going to be harrowing. And so um, I, I'm I'm very excited um, to, yeah. to get there. Um, I, for you, with this book, you know, I, and I think one of the complaints that we had had about um, the first one is, is characterization kind of felt off. Mm-hmm. Did you like the the characterization here? Did you feel like the the voices of the characters were coming through for you and and feeling like they should um, when it comes to like oh my gosh that that sounds like Kirk oh that sounds like Spock that sounds like Bones yeah absolutely like this one was far and away better in in that regard I could just I could hear their voices you know Kirk was Kirk yeah. You, hip he's he's one that you can kind mm-hmm. of just put any character on top of and call him kirk but like there's something about him um that if it's off it's off and and this one it was not the one i would say is bones to got to me a little bit just his negative negativity sometimes i know he's always kind of been the and he's he's my favorite character of the original series mm-hmm. but same he, he always has that tendency to to um look at the dark side of stuff, I guess, you know, not looking at the bright side. And there was almost a little too much of that. Like they're in this dire situation and he's saying things like, you sure this is a good idea? You're going to get us all killed or whatever. And just kind of like, come on bones, like have a little bit of positivity once in a while. And so every now and then that got a little over the top, but overall I'd say, yeah, the voices were so much better. And, um, you know, like I said at the beginning, it, this just felt more like a Star Trek book. Cause I felt like these were not just, we didn't just throw Star Trek names on characters that were just part of another story to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yep. I could not agree with you more. Uh, I, I think that this was one of those things where I felt like that the writer here did a great job of capturing what these characters sound like, which is really important when you're writing tie-in fiction. Mm-hmm. And in all honesty it might be the most important thing uh, to get right. Uh, because if you don't, it really hurts the story. And so I, I think, you know, props to to the author for really making me feel like this was an episode of, you know, Star Trek, the original series. Um, so, yes. well, I'm... Fascinated to see then what you are going to rate Beltaire. Yeah, it's it's almost not fair because having having this one come right after the last one, which was not great. Um, you know, there was not a lot this one could have done wrong to 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 do worse than that one. But um, no, I thought that this one was just so good, and um, I you know, like we said, it had good pacing they really didn't waste any time and um just because of some of the ridiculousness of of their solution and everything i I did i couldn't really go all the way up to like even a four but Mm -hmm. i i would say it was a very strong three and a half um small moons being thrown into large moons yes Yes. well it's i mean it's funny you say that because i'm 100 percent right there with you um, I think that this is definitely three and a half out of five Bones complaints um, because mm-hmm. it's a very strong story. I, I think the other thing that this book has going for it is that it makes me much more interested now in where we're going with these characters. 
uh, and with this storyline in the first place. I think the author found a way to take the promise of this book series and actually make it come alive. And so it's, it's a great job. Like I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed um, with the way that they were able to do that. And so I'm so excited, you know, to get to the next book. And I guess at this point, we'll just see how that is. Well, you know, Star Trek has this uh, thing where the second one, or the the even-numbered movies are, are better than the odd-numbered ones, and so far we're on track with this series. But I, I like you said, I, uh, I'm looking forward to what this one uh, has coming. So hopefully number three of this series sets that uh, track record aside and impresses us. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Casey. Uh, I mean, I'm definitely excited to see what this series has to offer. Um, I'm I'm very excited to see now um, where the story is going to go. Um, I mean, we definitely have left, I think, the characters in a, in a really rough spot, which I, I think is kind of fascinating and, and obviously gives us a, a really interesting place to go story-wise. Um, and so... Yeah, uh, I can't wait to get there. But uh, before we do, um, we'll uh, we'll be back uh, talking uh, with Bruce about the last part of the Left Hand of Destiny duology. Uh, so where can people find you, though, Casey, if they want to catch up with you? Yeah, you can find me all over the place. I'm on Goodreads, Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram at Knitting Trekkie. I'm also on Facebook and the Babel Conference, and you can also find me over on the United Federation of Podcasts Network doing a show called Mickey's Marvels, which is a podcast where we talk about anything and everything under the Disney umbrella. And you can find me all over the place on social media under the name MattRushing02, so Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, uh, any of those social media platforms, just search for my name and you'll find me there. Uh, You can also find me here on the network, um, on our whole other side of the network that doesn't cover Star Trek-related things. It covers all the other fandoms we love because, well, there are just so many fandoms to celebrate. So check out the 602 Club. Um, We've got some great bonus shows in that feed as well. So, so much happening there, and and I hope you'll check that out and enjoy it. Uh, You can also find me doing Warp 5, The Orb, as well as The Artificial Tango. Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine and The Artificial Tango. Chris Jones and I are walking through all of Star Trek Picard Season 2, which has been fantastic so far. Real fun uh and honestly, just a huge joy to be able to talk about so far. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, I've got a couple of shows. One is called Outpost, I did with Drea Kaufman. And that's where we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. You'll find me doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars every week. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number 